Amen. Open your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, when I mention 1 Corinthians 13, many of you would immediately think of the love chapter in the Word of God. And you would be correct. I don't know that it's the only love chapter in the Word of God, but it is often the one that we refer to as the love chapter. Someone has said, if you're looking for the love book in the Bible, you'll turn to the book of the Song of Solomon. If you're looking to the love verse in the Bible, you'll likely refer to John 3.16. And if you're looking for the love chapter, more often than not, you'll refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And tonight I want to preach a little bit on personal revival. The Bible says in Chronicles, if my people which are called by my name. He didn't say anything about the senators and the politicians in Washington, D.C. God said, if my people which are called by my name. It amazes me how so many churches today have married themselves to the government unknowingly. And they, they actually feel like that if America doesn't turn around God is going to go out of business. I want to say this with patriotism in my, in my soul. God doesn't need America. America needs God. And if America is ever going to be great, and I'm not certain that we ever were great. We say we were great. We compliment ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. Others have stated that the United States was great, but their observations are different than what we think of today. The summary of America's greatness by foreigners was determined by the churches in America, and that would correspond with the Word of God. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And so it's imperative that if we're going to see God bless America again, it's not going to be by the politicians that we vote into office, but when God's people humble themselves. And that's a major step right there because most of us, we would agree that we need revival, but none of us intend to change. We don't think we're contributing to the problem. We think it's everybody else that needs to change. And so humbling ourselves before God is a major step. Then he says, we must pray. And I commend your church again for making the effort to be a house of prayer. But going through the exercises and being able to connect with God often can be two different matters. We need to not only meet together to pray, but we need to be able to gain the ear of God. And then God says, humble yourself, pray, and seek my face. The psalmist said in Psalm 26, I said in my heart, I will seek thy face. And that's the thought I want to address tonight, as most of us in here realize that we need revival. The first revival in Scripture was not found in a nation nor was it found in a church. The first revival recorded in Scripture took place in a home. 
And if there's a place where revival is truly needed, it's in our homes. I've pastored and been in ministry now for nearly 50 years and have yet to hear a man stand in my church and say, Pastor, I know that, I know that me and my family were here Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I know we're here most Wednesday nights as well, and we're involved in different ministries in the church, but Pastor, my home needs revival. And until our homes experience revival, it's probably going to be a long time before we see the church revived. Strong churches make strong families, but keep this in mind. Strong families make up strong churches. Tonight we're going to commence reading in chapter 13, verse number 8 of 1 Corinthians. And if you're able, stand with me, please, in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And then we're going to do our little best to teach tonight and then preach. Verse number 8, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And tonight I want to focus on three words in the middle of verse number 12. Face to face. And I want to preach a message tonight that I title, Face to Face with God. Father, I'm going to do the best I can to teach and preach your word to an eternal bound audience. And that's very sobering to think that your word preached tonight could actually change this region of the United States of America. Could change the homes and families in this room. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. And give us obedient hearts to do what he commands. And for that lost soul tonight that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, may today be their spiritual birthday as they are born again into the family of God. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Tonight I'm going to preach and give you three thoughts. What is it to see God face to face? And then secondly, what is it for? And then in conclusion, what it will do. Now I'm going to teach the first two points, which will just idle my engine. 
And then when we get to verse, or the third thought tonight, then I'm going to preach. And I pray it'll be a blessing to your heart and soul. What is it to see God face to face? Well, again, let me remind you, we're talking about charity here. And he is emphasizing charity. And, and the, the context of this chapter comes between chapter 12 and 14. And, and you don't have to smirk at me like I'm bragging that I know numbers in their order, that 12, 13, 14. The content here between chapter 12 and chapter 14, he's dealing with the spiritual gifts that the church is actually blessed with, but it's actually a burden to them. They're proud and arrogant about the blessings that God has given them. And God wants them to see that greater than the blessings that he has given them is charity. You brag that you've got the gift of prophecy. You've got the gift of knowledge. You've got the gift of tongues. And you act like you're somebody. But I'm telling you that there's something greater than all that. And that is charity. And then you know it. The first three verses, those of you that are doing your uh, devotions with us, he says in verses 1 through 3, he says, Without charity, all I say is ineffective. Without charity, all I know is incomplete. Without charity, all I believe is insufficient. Without charity, all I give is insignificant. Without charity, all I accomplish is inadequate. And I can't over-exaggerate, I can't embellish the importance of charity in the church of the living God. Now, if I had the ability, I would come to Canaan Baptist Church and to express our love to you. And I talked to some men in our church that God has blessed financially, and I raised some money to to come and give you a blessing here at Canaan Baptist. And Lori and I, we just want to say to you, we, we love you. We enjoy being here. This is a wonderful church. And we, we have brought a, a, a small check. Well, it's not small because it's actually about eight feet tall and 20 feet long. It's imaginary. You got to put on your virtual glasses here. And... <clears throat> And covering it up, I have a drape. And so we want to have a little drum roll here. Oh, we don't have drums. We want to have a little uh, uh, bass thumping on the piano over there. And, and, and so I pull the drawstring and I pull back the drapes. And folks, I, wa I want to just give you a little love offering to your church. And it reveals a zero and a zero and then a decimal point. And some of you are already starting to go to sleep. And so I, I pull the cord and, and it pulls back the drape and you see another zero and another zero and another zero and a comma. And all of a sudden you're perking up a little bit. This might be interesting. And then I pull the cord and there's another zero. And finally, Brother Labee can't take it any longer and he runs up on the platform and he grabs the drape and he pulls it back to reveal nothing but zeros on that check. And you people say to yourself, that's what we would expect from a guy from Chicago. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. You see, that check is worthless without a one in front of all those zeros. And some of us, we pat ourselves on the back and we think, well, I go to Sunday morning church, I go to Sunday night church, decimal point. 
I go to Sunday school and I'm even there on Wednesday nights and I'm involved in a, a Bible study, comma. Well, I sing in the choir. Well, I sing specials. I play an instrument, comma. I'm a deacon. I'm involved in bus ministry. I'm involved in the nursery, comma. And you can fill that line up with all the zeros you want. And without charity, it's nothing. I can't exaggerate the importance of charity in the church. But he goes on to say, in verse number 8, he says that prophecy and knowledge, it's, it's going to fizzle out. Tongues are going to come to an abrupt stop. Do you see that? Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. That word fail means it's going to dissipate. It's going to eventually come to an end. My health as I age is failing. He says that tongues, they're going to cease. They're going to come to an abrupt stop. He says, knowledge, it shall vanish away like, like a mist. It will just eventually evaporate. It'll be gone. And verse 9 and 12 explains that these are partial gifts in and of themselves. And verse number 12 says that we will know God just like he knows us when that which is perfect is come. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Have you ever wondered what that meant? Verse number 10 is the key. He says, when that which is perfect, these partial gifts are going to disappear. Now, could I just remind you, sometimes we forget the chronology of the Bible. They didn't have the entire New Testament written at this time. It's being written. It's being compiled. And they didn't have all 27 books of the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He fulfilled the law. And now his spirit gives us grace that not only can we fulfill the law, we can keep the law and go beyond what the law could not do. And the 27 books of the New Testament are being written. And so in that time period, there were spiritual gifts given to the church to authenticate or authorize the preaching of this new doctrine. That we are not going to slay animals anymore in the temple. Jesus Christ is the once and for all sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. And we're going to have a new covenant, a new testament. And so for this time being, God gives the church these spiritual gifts of tongues and knowledge and prophecy... And the Bible says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part, these partial gifts, they're going to vanish away. Are you with me so far? Amen. So the question is, what is that which is perfect? Because when that which is perfect is come, then these spiritual gifts are going off the scene. The church won't be using them anymore. Well, there's basically two schools of thought. One is, that which is perfect is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Pentecostal friends, our charismatic friends, this is the school that they would adhere to. They're looking for Jesus to return. And when he returns, then these spiritual gifts will not be needed anymore. 
He's going to replace those spiritual gifts. And that's why there's a certain segment under the umbrella of Christianity that teach and preach that a spirit-filled Christian will have these spiritual gifts of knowledge and prophecy and tongues. And you can mock them, you can make fun of them if you want, but more often than not, those people have been taught from someone else. I don't make fun of them. I just like to teach them what the scripture says. The other school of thought is this, when that which is perfect is come, is referring to the word of God. You say, well, who's right? Well, I'm preaching tonight and I'm always right. There's a key in our phrase that unlocks this. God says, when that which is perfect is come, you'll see God face to face. Isn't that what it said? But then, face to face, we'll know as we are known. What does that mean? Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about God. And he knows you, and he knows you like a book. And when that which is perfect has come, you'll be able to know him like a book. But is there any way to find an answer in Scripture? Does Scripture interpret Scripture in this case? Well, I think it does. Has there been anybody in the Bible that has seen God face to face? I think so. Let me read a few occasions to you. Chapter 5, verse 4 in the book of Deuteronomy, the word says, The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 35, and I, God, will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, the Bible says, and there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Bible says of Jacob in Genesis 32, verse 30, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. Now, folks, we didn't take the time to open up the text, but you can bear out the scripture, search it yourself to see that I read it accurately. I just read to you four different accounts where two different generations of Israel, the Bible says, saw God face to face. I read to you that the scriptures attest that Moses saw God face to face. I read to you the verse in Genesis after Jacob wrestled with that angel that night. The Bible says that he saw God face to face. And yet Jesus said, no man has seen God at any time. The Bible says, God said to Moses in Exodus 33, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul writing to the young preacher boy Timothy, speaking of God whom no man has seen nor can see. And wow, this is almost confusing. God tells us that we need to seek his face, Chronicles 7.14. 
We read four different accounts where someone saw God face to face, and yet the Bible's very explicit. No man can see God face to face. It's just one of those hundreds of contradictions in the Bible. You know, the Bible's full of them. You know, when people say that, I like to pull out my Bible and say, show me one. So what do we do when we come to a place in Scripture like that, that it seems like this is rather confusing? God says we should seek his face, but nobody can see him. Is he telling us to do something that's impossible that none of us will ever be able to do? Why would God torture us like that? Let's think. Americans can't think because our brains have been dumbed down by television. Brains are drunk with TV and entertainment. Let's think for a moment. Let's go back to those occasions where the scripture says somebody saw God face to face. Do you remember what took place when Moses went up on the mount? And the Bible says that he saw God face to face. Do you remember what was taking place? He was receiving the Ten Commandments. He was receiving the Word of God. The children of Israel, on two different occasions, you read the verses prior and they say, whatever God says, you just tell us what He says, we're going to do it. They were receiving the Word of God. And some of you are racing ahead to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel that night. And may I remind you that that angel wasn't just any old angel. Not out of disrespect to the angels of heaven, but this was the angel of the Lord. This was, a, this was the Lord Jesus Christ himself that he was wrestling with. This is what theologians refer to as a Christophany, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. He's the eternal I am. He's the one that created the world. And he has walked upon this planet numerous times. And the scripture refers to him as the angel of the Lord when he comes and reveals himself to mankind. And here's Jacob wrestling with the Lord Jesus himself. And he receives of him. Well, Jesus is the word. There are three that bear witness in heaven. The father, the word, and the spirit. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jacob is wrestling with the Word of God. And I'm going to suggest to you tonight, using Scripture, comparing Scripture, when God says, when that which is perfect is come, He is referring to the Word of God. Now, I could have jumped right into the Greek real quickly. It wouldn't take a great amount of Greek knowledge to be able to show you that it cannot be a person. It cannot be the Lord Jesus Christ. It is referring to the Word of God. But I like letting the Scripture interpret itself. And the Scripture says that when that which is perfect is come, when they receive the completed Word of God, they'll be able to see God face to face. But it's also applicable today in our spiritual life. When you receive the Word of God, you will see God face to face. You'll be in His 
intimate presence. When he says, when my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. He's talking about God's people receiving his word. We can't get around that. There's no shortcut. It's not sports and God. It's not entertainment and God. You want to see God face to face? It takes time. The songwriter said, take time to be holy. Why? It takes time. You don't wake up in the morning holy. Well, I don't. Maybe you do, but I don't. I got to get in the presence of God ASAP so I don't mess a lot of things up. We need to see God face to face by receiving his word. Now, my second point, if you're with me, you're still awake, say amen. Amen. What is it to see God face to face? It's to receive his word. Secondly, what's it for? Turn over to James chapter one. I told you we're going to teach a little bit. So we're going to teach through this. And then my third point, I'm going to preach. And I'm already sweating, so I'm going to be sweating pretty bad tonight for this is over. And some of you had a long day because you're already drifting off into la-la land. And, and I don't blame you. If you get tired, just lay down. Just don't snore. James chapter 1. You know this passage of Scripture. Look in verse number 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Now, the word glass there would be our modern word mirror. He's looking at himself in a glass, a mirror. He's looking at his reflection, his image being reflected off the glass. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, He, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James says that a man that hears the word, but he doesn't do it, is like the guy that goes to the mirror and he forgets what he saw. Are you getting the imagery here? Do you understand the the illustration that he's giving us? He's saying a man that goes to the mirror, he looks in the mirror to see what his face looks like. Hey, listen, we had five daughters. I got an education watching girls in front of a mirror. That's an education. My dad told me, he said, son, never preach against makeup. Paint can make any old barn look good. Now, Now, I didn't say that. My dad said that. And he's in heaven (laughs) way before his time. Man, I want to tell you, watching those girls, when they go, let me just illustrate. When when one of the girls went to the mirror, this this is similar to what took place. They go and they look in the mirror 
and they look at their natural face and they go, I can't let anybody see me like this. And so the project begins. Out come out the buckets and the tools. We lock the bathroom door. First they start with what they call a stripper. It, it, it removes all the makeup from previous days. It removes dead skin. It removes flakes. If possible, it'll take out those little blackheads. It, it just gets them down to, to just bare skin. And that scares them worse. Ah! Then they get a bass. Now me, I thought a bass was the low singer in a quartet. But a bass is really the, like a primer paint. It's kind of what you put on first. And they put it all over and, and, and it's funny, you feel bad, but some of the seniors in church, they're on a fixed income, you know, they just get social security and, and so they're trying to save money every way they can. And, and that's why they always stop right here on the jawline. And their necks are like neon lights that could be a lighthouse somewhere out on the coast. And <clears throat> so let me help you senior saints, just at least feather it down a little bit. You know, it doesn't have to be as thick as up here, just feather it down a little bit. And so it's a gradual shock to the rest of us. But they put a base on and, and then they start putting accent paints on there and they they want you to, for some reason, to see that there's a cheekbone here. And so they accentuate the cheekbone so that you know that there are bones here. And, and then they, they get some paint for the eyelids and they paint the top of the eyelids. And, and sometimes that paint can be different colors. And never ask them why you change the color. Just go with the program. And sometimes they have glitter. We all hate glitter because you can't get it out of the pews, but that's all right. They put all kinds of stuff on their eyelids. And then they, they put a pencil and they, they yeah, draw a line so you know that the eyelids start here and the eyelashes start here. And so they draw a line there so you know that. And sometimes they draw a little swoosh out here with that line. The Cleopatra swoosh. And then, and then they get out a pair of pliers and they, and they clamp it on those little eyelashes and they And then they flutter their eyes. And I'm not sure what they're looking for, but if it didn't get where they want, they put those pliers on there again. And they put lipstick on. And then they finally say, I'm ready to meet the world. Now, guys, they go to the mirror. It's a little different. Hey, doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> You're lucky if you can get a toothbrush in their mouth. <laughs> I'm making fun a little bit, but it illustrates what we interpret this passage to meet that many of us, we think that James is saying we go to the mirror of God's word and God's word reflects 
the imperfections of our life. It reveals to us where we are wrong and where we need improvement. And James says, if you, if you leave the mirror and you don't do what the book says, then you, you forgot what the word revealed. I'm not denying that the word of God can point out sin in your life, but let me ask you a question. Do you need to read the Bible to find out where you're wrong? Think about it. In third world countries, they've never heard the name Jesus. They've never seen a Bible. They've never met a missionary. But they know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to lie, to bear false witness. They know it's wrong to covet what others have. They know there's a God out there. They even give him a name. And they speak that name with reverence and would never think of taking that God's name in vain. They have a day that they use to worship that pagan God, that unknown God. And they also know that you ought to honor your mother and your father. I want to ask you tonight, how do they know that? Romans says God wrote his commandments on the heart of every man. And that's why no man will stand before God without excuse. He, he has no excuse. You say, well, he's never met, he's never heard a sermon on Jesus Christ. Neither did Cornelius, but he really wanted to meet God. The Bible says he prayed. He was involved in church. He was a devout man. He didn't even know God. He was better than some of the members of this church. And because of his desire to see God, God sent a man to him. I'm saying to you tonight that the heavens declare the glory of God. And God has written his word on our hearts. And yes, the Bible will reveal our imperfections. But you know, and I know, even without the Bible, that we're not ready to stand before a holy God. So when we say we go to the mirror and we forgot what we saw, Maybe it's not just the revelation of our imperfections that we're missing. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's see if we can get a better understanding from another verse of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, a mirror, what does he see? The glory of the Lord. What happens when we see it? We're changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. What is it to see God face to face? It's to receive his word. 
when we receive his word, when we go to the book, when we go to the mirror, when we go to the glass and we look in here, what are we going to see? We're going to see Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. This whole book is about Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus in here who is the glory of the Lord. There's not going to be a need for the sun in heaven. It's going to be lit up by the glory of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ. God says when we get in the book, we ought to see Jesus here. And then we ought to see that reflection out of here. The purpose of seeing God face to face is to change you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural book. The Word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's not just your decision to do this. Your decision is to receive God's Word. And He that began a good work in you, He's going to complete it. He's going to perfect you. He's going to shape you to become like Jesus Christ. It's not, okay, today I'm going to be more loving. No, it's when we receive his word. Get into the book, read the book, meditate on the book, memorize the book, speak the book. Receive his word. It will transform us to be like Jesus. That sounds like a pretty good deal. That sounds like a powerful book to change us from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. Is there anyone in the room tonight that would like to be like Jesus? Seek his face. I'm a KJVer without apology. I'm not a KJVer because my predecessors are. I've studied it out. I understand and could teach a really good lesson on why I use the King James Version of the Bible. But I don't study the Bible to defend it. I read the Bible so that I can be changed. I don't have to defend the word of God. And yet at the same time, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the King James Version. I just don't pick a fight over it. Does that make sense? I'm King James, but I'm not mad at, about it. Quite frankly, I'd rather you read any version of the Bible than to watch any TV. Because the TV that we watch indoctrinates you far worse than even other translations of the Bible. Are you thinking? Don't misquote me. I'm just saying. The KJV is what I believe is the preserved word of God to the English speaking people. And that can be defended intellectually as well as spiritually. There's nothing wrong when people come up to us and say, well, it's just a translation. Well, what does that mean? 
Does that mean it's inferior? Oh, it's just a translation. Oh, I guess that's no good. Wait a minute. Enoch, the Bible says Enoch was a translation. The Bible says in Hebrews that he was translated into heaven. That means he's a translation. Can you imagine the angels up in heaven gathering over at the, in front of the water cooler? <coughs> There's Enoch. He's just a translation. As if that means he's inferior? Just because this is a translation doesn't make it inferior. God is able to preserve his word. If he went through the process, and when I say if, there's no doubt in my mind, if he went through the process of stretching it out over 1,600 years of time with 40 different human authors that he used, inspired to write his word, and went through it word by word by word, I think God's able to preserve his word. Not only is he able, I think a smart God would do that to put that much time and effort into giving his word to his people. But I'm not going to waste 10 minutes fighting over the translation issue. I'll spend hours teaching those that would like to learn why. But if you want to debate it and try to, I don't have time for that. I want to get in this book and see God face to face. Now, what will it do? This is the good part. When you see God face to face, it's going to have an impact in your life. Oh, yes, it will. Let's just look at, let's just look at the four references I made earlier to the people that saw God face to face. See what happened to them. Jacob. Remember when God saw or Jacob saw God face to face? What did he get? He got a new blessing. The Bible says in Genesis 32, and he blessed him there. Do you know what a blessing is? It's something that's good. It makes you happy. It's, it's not a sin to be happy. It's okay. You can actually be happy in church. There are some people in our home church years ago, when I first started pastoring, I was young, I was optimistic, I was full of energy and zeal, and, and man, I, I just believed God could do anything, and I'd high-five about every church member, and couldn't wait for church to begin, and, and then there was Sister Grouch, and she was, the problem was she was married to one of the leaders in the church, and Oh, so that gives her a little more clout, a little more influence. And she was just so negative about everything. And, and I, was, I was bent on bring, just bringing her out of herself and, and, and enjoying God and his church. And, and I'd say, hey, how's it going today? Isn't it a great day? Oh, pastor, it's so hard serving Jesus. You know, there's so many superficial Christians out there that they're happy all the time. They're not fighting the battles I'm fighting. It's, it's a war. And it's, it's just tough. Yeah, but the weather's good. I mean, it's beautiful outside. You can rejoice. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's going to snow in three months. Winter's coming. Boy, I remember last year during the winter, I, 
I just would. But yeah, but I mean, we had someone saved. Yeah, they said they got saved. Yeah, well, how's come they're not out soul winning with us this week? If they were really saved, they would have been. And you know, after a while, I'm thinking, dear God, kill her or me. Well, no wonder God didn't kill her. He didn't want her up there either. I mean, <laughs> and I just learned there's some people that are not going to be happy. And if, even if they were happy, they're not going to let you know it because they don't want you to take credit for them being happy. And they're happiest if they can take your happiness away from you. So I just learned to adapt. You know, my dad used to say when you're in when you're the pastor of the church, bring a pocket full of pacifiers. Because you're going to have people whining and crying all the time. When they start, just pop one in. <laughs> so that's what I did with her. I would, I'd be you know, enjoying fellowship with those that were on fire. And I'd get to her and I'd just change my whole gait. I'd just slow down. Hey, Sister Grouch. <laughs> I want to tell you. It's brutal being a believer, isn't it? Oh, yes, pastor. It's a war out there. Yeah, it is. I'll tell you, the devil's been chasing me all over town this week. Oh, pastor, it's just so good to see you mature. When you first started pastoring, you were always upbeat and happy, and, and that's so superficial, but you're really... You're maturing in the Lord. It's just a joy to see you. I, th I thank you. I mean, I nearly got excited seeing the sun out there this morning. I thought, shoot, it's going to be a blizzard in three months. And Oh, pastor, it's, it's just so good to see you grow up. And I'm, Dear God, do we have to put up with her every week? Hallelujah. Can't some people stay home and watch it on TV? It's okay to be happy. And quite frankly, when you receive God face or see God face to face, receive his word, you get happy. The first time you saw God face to face is the day you got saved. That's the first time. When you got saved, didn't you get a little happy? I mean, I remember when I got saved, even my sisters just radically changed. They, they were beautiful. Prior to my salvation, they were horribly challenged in their facial appearance. Now, don't come up to me and say that. They got mirrors. They know. But when I got saved, I mean, it's like, wow, everything changed. You just get blessed. You get happy. And when you get blessed and you receive God's word, it's going to put a smile in your face and a smile in your heart. Jacob got a blessing. The Bible says, whoso looketh in the law, of, uh, perfect law of liberty, and continue it therein, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Jacob also got a new walk, did he not? The Bible says he walked with a halt. We all walk differently. Let's be honest, we're all fundamental, independent, narrow-minded, King James only, red-letter edition, no fun Baptist church members. But we, we all walk differently. I mean, the teenagers in my church, they would imitate the way I walk. And they thought it was hilarious. 
I don't see anything wrong with the way I walk. My left foot gets out there, my right foot gets out there, and I'm not falling on my face. To me, that's normal. But I've seen different walks. I had a roommate in Bible college. He walked on his tiptoes. I'm not making that up. He walked on his tiptoes. I slept with one eye open every night. We got guys in Chicago, they got more rhythm than I do. And they, they walk with rhythm. And back in the day, don't you miss those boom boxes? Man, they were as big as this pulpit. They'd hoist them up on their shoulder and have the music blaring. And they'd have a walk. Teenagers, they walk differently. You ever notice when they become teens, it's like their feet become lead. They can hardly close their mouth. Can't articulate. How's it going, honey? See the Braves they want? Cool. What are you doing tomorrow? Huh? Yeah. It's like everything's real heavy for them. They, they walk differently. God's not talking about a different walk. He's talking about a unnatural walk. When we see God face to face, it's not that we walk different than other branches of Christianity. We walk unnaturally. The world says, you want to get ahead? You push. You work overtime. You drive. God says, you want to get ahead? Humble yourself. That's unnatural. The world says, you want to make money? you got to lie, cheat, and steal, do whatever it takes to work up the corporate ladder. God says, you want more money? Give more. That's unnatural. Are, are you with me? When we see God face to face, we are going to live differently than our flesh would normally want to live. Why? God's changing us to be like Jesus Christ. Then I think of the two children of Israel. When they saw God face to face, what happened to them? Well, they got protection. The Bible says in Numbers 14 that, the, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face. Thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them. They got protection. You know, we got an enemy out there. And the government, they try to make one another enemies. Well, it's the other political party that's your enemy. That's not my enemy, folks. And if that's the way you think, I'm not joining you on that. There's actually saved Republicans and saved Democrats. And that's going to bother some of you. They're not our enemy. The devil is our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're involved in a spiritual warfare. And when we see God face to face, we're going to receive protection. The government... They want to give abortions and condoms and Ritalin and more prisons and police. They want police, but they want to defund the police. They give more government housing. They got 
people trying to be dependent on the government rather than God. And I'm telling you, when you see God face to face, you're going to depend on God for everything. And you'll be able to have the victory. The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. They got guidance. The Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The entrance of thy words giveth light, giveth understanding to the simple. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Too many of us are like the gypsy that a city slicker noticed in the state of Pennsylvania. You come out into the country away from the big city and just enjoying the beautiful rolling hills and saw this colorful wagon down over the hill and got out of his car and he's looking at the gorgeous beauty. And, but his eye kept going back to that gypsy. He didn't know what a gypsy was at the time. And he noticed the man was down there and he picked up a stick and he threw it up in the air and he picked it up again and he threw it up in the air again. And, and for the third time, he picked it up and finally the city slicker got in his car and started driving down towards him and, and introduced himself and engaged in conversation. And the man explained that he was a gypsy and explained their lifestyle, etc. And he never met a gypsy before. He was really uh, overwhelmed with meeting a, a, a man with a, really a different culture altogether. And so the city slicker asked him, he said, well, I noticed you were throwing a stick up in the air. What's that about? He said, well, when I come to a fork in the road and I don't know which way to go, I, this is a magical stick. And I throw it in the air and the direction that it points, that's the direction I'm supposed to go. And the city slicker said, well, I noticed you, you threw it up in the air three times. The gypsy said, yeah, I know. It keeps pointing right how a lot of Christians are sometimes. God points right. and You want to find another verse. So you throw a stick in the air. And if you can't find a verse, you go to another church to find, another, to find a preacher that will agree with you. And before long, you'll keep tossing it in the air until you find a doctrine, a church, a spiritual leader that will point you in the direction that you've already made up your mind to go. I'm saying tonight that if you want to get direction in your life, you'll find it in here. Should I get married? Should I marry her? Should I marry him? Should I take this job? Should I buy this home? Should I buy this car? Should I sign up for this ministry in the church? You say all that's in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. Well, where is that? I've read it cover to cover. You haven't sought his face. You seek his face, he'll reveal his will to you. Then the third thing that you'll receive, we see in the life of Moses. The Bible says, <clears throat> Exodus 33, 11, this is my favorite. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. When you see God face to face, you'll see. And when I say see, the word that would best describe that, you'll experience 
having the best friend you could ever have. Hey, if God is your friend, that's a good friend to have. The songwriter wasn't exaggerating when he, when he said, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sin, all our grief, he'll bear. The Bible says there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. The Bible says, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Bible says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13, verse 5. And there's going to be times in your life when you, where you go down and you're going to go into a place that is so low you'll feel like your friends have abandoned you. You'll feel like the church has forsaken you. You may even be tempted to think that God has left you. Isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He hasn't. When you see God face to face, you'll realize the best friend you ever had is right there with you. May 22nd, 1989. I'm driving home from making a hospital visit in Chicago Heights, Illinois. I turn left, head south on Governor's Highway and as I approach Salk Trail, the street that our church is located, there's a paramedic's emergency vehicle going north and the lights are flashing. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I said out loud in my car, that could be my dad. Drove to the church and went to my office. And when I got to the door, there was a note on the door. It said, Pastor, call Lori. S-A-S-A-P. I thought, that's odd. This is before cell phones. Lori never calls and tells me to call right away. She's pretty patient. She can wait to the end of the day. That sick feeling in my gut got me to drive over to my dad's house. He lived just a mile from the church and I drove over to his house, and when I arrived, my two sisters were there, and they immediately jumped out of their car, and they said, Bruce, did you hear that Dad was taken to Olympia Fields Osteopathic? I said, no, I hadn't, hadn't heard that. So they said, well, we, we probably ought to go over there. And while we were conversing, Lori pulled in in her car and jumped out, and the four of us got in my car, and we drove to Olympia Fields. Got out of the car and walked up to those doors. And when I hit the pad, the doors opened. And from the other side, another double door opened up. And a young man, reddish hair, about five foot six. He came directly to me like he knew who I was. And he said, are you Bruce Humbert? And I said, yes, I am. He said, your dad is dead. I mean, it hit me. He had his first heart attack when he was 38, second at 49. You know, when the 
someone makes it through two, you just think that they're Superman. They might be sickly, but they're going to make it. We went into the room. The room wasn't, it wasn't as long as this pew. My dad's body was laying here. My mom was stroking his hair. Oh, Don, don't leave me. And I could feel the emotion in me. And I wanted to cry so bad. But at the same time, I realized I'm now the pastor of the church. My mom needs her pastor to be a source of strength. My sisters, they look up to their brother and they need their pastor. I held it in the best I could counseled them and we proceeded to make arrangements and my dad did a wonderful thing for our family being a sick man he he knew that his death was imminent so he wrote in case of my death an envelope for us with point by point instructions what to do and I can't exaggerate how helpful that was but one of the instructions was he wanted a closed casket. And that didn't go over well with our church family. They loved him. He was the founding pastor. You could not not love him. He was brilliant. And for whatever reason, he wanted a closed casket. And it just killed my mother that she would never see her husband again. So she appealed to me and said, could we open the casket just for the family the night before the funeral? We'll go to the funeral home. It won't be a church. We'll go to the funeral home. And could we just have the open casket? I said, Mom, that's your husband. I'm just telling you what he says here. I'll, I'll yield to whatever you want. I'll probably get rebuked in heaven, but we had an open casket in the funeral home just for our family. So me and my wife and my five baby girls, my sister Donna, my sister Joyce and their children, we gathered at the funeral home. Up to that point, I was strong and I was able to coach my family and counsel them and keep them on the up and up. But during that night, I mean, you can feel it and some of you know whereof I speak. I started losing it on the inside. And I knew that I was going to make a fool of myself and embarrass myself. So I excused myself and went to another room. And I'm telling you, church, I wept like I'd never wept before. It hurt. I cried out to God. I said, God, I don't know what to do. Not only did I revere him and love him, but I'm the pastor of the church and I'm not like him. How in the world am I going to pastor? And God, I need help now. I need comfort. 
God in his tender voice. He said, Bruce, what do you tell others that are in sorrow? Why? I tell them to quote the scriptures. Well, then quote the scriptures. And folks, I can quote hundreds of scripture that I've committed to memory. But at that moment, I couldn't think of one. My mind was blank. I was overwhelmed with emotion. And I cried to God. I was not angry. I, God, what do I do? I don't, I can't even think of a verse. And then I felt humiliated. God said, well, just go back to the beginning. Just start at the beginning of the Bible. And I don't want to say that I corrected God, but I was almost insulted. God, I don't need a verse on creation. My heart is broken. I need wisdom. I, I'm a pastor. I don't need a verse on creation, God. Just, just start at the beginning of the book. And on my knees, I start quoting Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. That's all I could get out. They're playing music in the funeral home, and I hadn't noticed a song the whole night. But when I quoted Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God, my ears tuned into a song that I hadn't heard sung since I was 10 years old. Our song director at the Akron Baptist Temple used to sing. It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. And God whispered in my heart, in the beginning, God. You're at a new beginning, Bruce, and I am all you need. In that moment, when my heart was crushed, surrounded by many people, I felt totally alone. I saw God face to face. And I realized, no matter how low I go, he's with me. It's not just words on a piece of paper. It's a fact. The psalmist said, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. But if I make my bed in hell, you'll be there with me. There's just some places in this life that you're going to go and you're going to feel like nobody is with you. But he will be there. And if you'll learn and pursue to see God face to face. You're going to get blessed. You're going to get a new walk. You're going to get protection. You're going to get guidance. But you're going to experience the best 
friend you could ever have. We need revival in our country. We need revival in our churches. We need revival in our home, but just supposing your home never experiences revival. Are you doomed? Suppose we don't have revival in our church. Are you, are you just out of luck? Suppose we don't see revival in America. Is it just too bad for us? Oh, no. You can see God face to face tonight. And you'll experience personal revival that no one can take away. And I would encourage you to obey what God said when he said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You do that, you'll be able to turn from your wicked ways. Some of you are trying to turn from your wicked ways in your own strength, and you keep going back to it. But if you just humble yourself and pray and seek his face, you'll have the power, you'll have the presence of God to turn from your wicked ways. I ask you tonight, if you want to carve out time this week to seek God face to face, why don't you come to the altar tonight and make a date with God? Dear God, I'm going to get in your word. Here's when and here's where. I'm going to make an appointment. I want to see you face to face. Will you stand to your feet, heads bowed and eyes closed. The pianist will come and play music conducive for prayer, and I just invite you to come and let's gather around the altar tonight and ask God for revival in our hearts. Father, thank you again for loving us and being so patient with us. I get impatient with my own self, and yet you're so long-suffering with me. Father, we desire to seek your face. Would you revive us? In Jesus' name, amen.